So today's reading is from 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 19 to 40. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what do you say is good? Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or travelling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the ball into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. 
They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Great, thanks so much, Alison, for reading that for us. Um, if you've got a Bible to hand, do keep it open at 1 Kings, 20, uh, Kings 18. Um, I will just share screen at a couple of points if there's particular bits to look back at together. Um, it's very good to be with you again uh, for the second week. It's great to be working with, uh, with Claire and with Mark and Alison. And uh, thanks, Amy, for leading us um, so well with the song. Let me pray again. Let me ask for God's help as we turn to this portion of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Elijah's time, you graciously brought your word back to your people. And we thank you for the privilege of having your word before us this lunchtime. We ask that you'll open your word to our hearts and you'll open our hearts to your word. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As I said last week, these events do sound very strange to us, don't they, in 21st century Westminster or Inverness or wherever we are today. But there are reasons why God so dramatically showed up in human history at this unique moment. This is after Moses. It's after Joshua. The people were rescued. It's after great King David. And God's vision for the world was under threat in the sense that the people he rescued were given a purpose that through their righteous living, as they trusted the Lord and walked his ways, the world would come to know the God of the Bible. And yet, at this point, that very nation has been divided, and this northern kingdom, Israel, has turned under the leadership of a terrible king, Ahab, to worship a completely different God, Baal. So this is, this is the Lord, the living God, showing up in human history, to win back his people again. And in the first 19 verses, which we're going to look at next week, we're going to look at the beginning and end of the chapter next week, God sets up a contest between him and this pagan god, Baal, that's being worshipped in the land. King Ahab is leading the people in kind of state-sponsored worship of Baal. He evidently thought this was the progressive thing to do, to become more like the nations around them. And his wife, Jezebel, has sent throughout the land to find prophets of Yahweh. In other words, to find the Bible teachers and the people who, who taught, led the people in trusting God. And she's killed them. She's killed everyone that she can find. It's as serious as that. So God has withdrawn his blessing from the land. It hasn't rained there for now for three years. And God sends his prophet Elijah, who he's brought out of the land to protect him. He sent him back in so that this is the word of God breaking in and colliding with a king of God's people who was an apostate king. And uh, we've got four brief points as we look at it, having set the scene. Let me just share screen to bring these up. Because my first point is on the screen here. And it's the clarifying demand of the real God. The clarifying demand of the real God. So we hear that Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And the logic it's so clear, it sounds obvious, doesn't it? But it's the same today. If the Christian faith is true, how long are we going to waver between two opinions? 
if it's true, get on and follow him. And yet a lot of the time, that's our biggest problem. Sometimes it's because of a lack of faith, a lack of confidence that holds us back because we're surrounded by a constant avalanche of culture and media that says to us, there is no God. Jesus is not Lord. His values are outdated. And for many of us, that so troubles us that we struggle to believe. And that holds us back from just saying, well, no, the Lord is God. I'm just going to follow him. But Elijah's command to the people there rings true today, that when we get back to the basics and we look again at the, the claims that Jesus made and we look at the evidence that he rose from the dead, that he was dead and the tomb was empty and he was seen alive again. The Bible challenges us to ask ourselves, how long will we spend our lives wavering between two opinions? In Scotland, where I now live in Glasgow, we call it swithering. It's a Scottish phrase that I've learned in the last five years of living here. Swithering is when you're kind of wavering between two opinions, being indecisive. And I I've vividly remember as a young Christian being given the advice from an older Christian, um, stop waiting around worrying that it might not be true, because it is true, and you've just got to get on with it. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And some of us temperamentally, we're, we're always going to struggle to believe whatever it is we believe. And we live in an age that's strongly influenced by postmodernism. So there is a suspicion, an inherent suspicion of, of really any truth claim. We become experts in tearing down truth claims. And we need to be aware of that in ourselves. Because one of the saddest things about wavering and holding back from being committed to the Christian faith is that um, it robs us of the joy of being a Christian. And it's when we really step out in faith for Jesus and live distinctively for him um, that we start to experience what a blessing it is to cherish God's promises and know we really are forgiven and experience life by the Spirit and savour our living hope that even death can't take away from us. So let's be glad of the clarifying demand of the real God that we shouldn't be double-minded um, and waver between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. And that's wonderful news when we compare what God is like with the alternatives. So our second point is lunchtime, the distinctive nature of the real God. As the God war unfolds on the summit of Mount Carmel, the way the prophets of Baal behave teaches us something about false gods generally and some of the ways that the real God is different. And some of this is especially helpful for us because the gods of our age aren't always found in temples or shrines. They're just the things that we build our life on instead of God. And we turn good things into God things. And in our culture, that would include success, money, sex, comfort, family, the things that we live for and think that they'll give us what in truth only God will give us. And we often enslave ourselves to those things when we've really decided, you know, that's the thing that will give me fulfillment and peace. So just notice how God is different to Baal. Um, the couple of affirmative statements we can make about him on Mount Carmel. The first one is numbers are of no consequence to him. So look again at verse 22. Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Do you see how outnumbered he is on the mountain? 
And if you were judging truth by numbers in Israel that day, you'd have had no doubt that it's Baal who's the real God. But who worships Baal today? It's unthinkable, isn't it? But today, if you were playing that game, the numbers game, and you looked at the census trends, or you looked at church attendance among your colleagues, you wouldn't be impressed by God's approval ratings, would you? The approval ratings in this country for the God of the Bible. And there's a secularization narrative that says of that, you know, some people are clinging on. But really, if you're a Christian today, you're on the wrong side of history. Now, there are writers who kind of look into that, delve into the stats and say, actually, the numbers tell a very different story to that. If you look at genuine, committed belief in Jesus, then actually the Christian faith is growing significantly. But we don't need to, to worry about that. The point here is that the God who is there is the God of the Bible. And it doesn't matter how many cheerleaders he has in any nation at any time. Could one of our personal resolutions be when we see what he did at Mount Carmel to think, well, look, I'm a Christian and I still will be, even if I'm the last Christian left in my city. Um, because it's true. And because popularity doesn't determine reality. The next thing to notice about him on the mountain is that activity is no inducement for him. I know the writing's a bit small there on the text, but I'll, I'll describe again what happened as we had it so well read for us by Alison. The, the altars are set up, and in verse 26, we read this. They took um, the bull uh, given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they made. And then Elijah taunts them. And he says, well, maybe your God is deep in thought, or maybe he's busy on the toilet, or maybe he's traveling, or maybe he's asleep and you've got to wake him up. And then verse 28 is, is pathetic, isn't it? They shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passes and they keep on going with their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. And then we read this, that last sentence there, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Why? Because there's no one there. He's a fiction, Baal is a fiction. So there's no one to answer. There is no God in heaven, but Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am. And he demands nothing like that of, of us as his people. That's the good news. Activity is not required like that to induce our God to act. So Elijah's actions are so simple. He just prepares the altar and then he prays, verse 37, answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then we read verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. It's a glorious moment. And let's feel that sense of relief of seeing that the living God, the God who is there, is not like Baal. We don't have to put ourselves into pain and slash ourselves and go through rituals to be heard by him. When you follow him, he's generous, not demanding. He's a God of grace, not of works. His yoke is easy and his burden is light.
We do need to think about the outcome for those who still won't turn to him, though, and that's our third point, um, the divisive encounter with the real God. So you've got the people in verse 39 who see this and they fall to the floor and they cry, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But in verse 40, the prophets of Baal are killed. And uh, it's a difficult verse for us. We can say a couple of things in mitigation. One is to remember how high the stakes are at this point. God's saving plan for the world is being undermined by these prophets who are leading his people away from him. Um, that God's word at this point in history is the, the Old Testament to them, governs the relationship between God and his people. And it's very clear about the sanctions on false prophets. Um, another thing to remember is that these are people who don't turn back to Yahweh, even though it hasn't rained for three years, and even after the fire on the mountain. And that Jezebel, presumably with their backing, the queen, has slaughtered the prophets of the Lord in the land. But it's still a shocking verse, and there is in this a bringing forward of the final judgment that the Bible does warn us is coming. That uh, if we're not, if, if we if we're against God, then he will affirm that and he'll be against us. And it's a sobering warning that we do need to turn back to God now if we haven't ever done that so that we encounter Jesus as a great saviour rather than as our judge. And let me go on now to our fourth point, the gracious provision of the real God. It's an easy thing for Yahweh to win the God war. He's not like the Mandalorian. I don't know if you've watched the Mandalorian, but basically it's about this mini Yoda character who can do amazing stuff, like use the force in Star Wars. Um, but every time he does it, he loses his energy. It sort of takes it out of him and he has to go to sleep. And the God of the Bible isn't like that. You know, he, it's, it's an easy thing for him to send fire from heaven, from the sky down onto this altar. So where do we look for our Mount Carmel? Well, in the first instance, we might look to the works of Jesus. We might think of the empty tomb. But doesn't part of us long for a Mount Carmel today? Wouldn't we love to be able to gather everyone in Parliament Square or Trafalgar Square and get an altar up for whatever God's people are following and an altar for the God of the Bible and for God to send fire down from the sky to burn up his altar? Why doesn't God do it like this today? And I think it's important to remember that Mount Carmel doesn't actually work fundamentally in the sense that we might think it would. It doesn't change Jezebel and it doesn't change Ahab. It's a miracle of great power, but it doesn't actually change hearts in Israel. And for, that, for the ultimate fulfillment of these events at Mount Carmel, I don't think actually we look to the resurrection of Jesus so much as we do to the cross of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, Paul, the apostle, writes that what people are looking for is power. He talks about the Jewish people looking for power, but it, it would be true of lots of us. And that God subverts that because the power of God is seen in Christ crucified. And there's deep resonance here because Elijah builds an altar on the hill. Did you notice that? I mean, obviously we noticed it, but if you think about that, what he actually does is it says that he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. 
It's a place of bringing offerings to approach God. So that when fire comes down on the altar on Mount Carmel, it's something that's happened before in God's dealings with his people. When the temple was first built, fire at the altar was the Lord's green light. It was his way of saying he would accept his people approaching him to worship in this way. So here is the Lord saying on Mount Carmel that he will accept Elijah's sacrifice and the people can now approach God without fear. That's the gospel of Mount Carmel. And for us, the gospel of Mount Calvary is even more powerful. Because even after Mount Carmel, there is a debt that has to be paid somehow for the sin of God's people then and now. God's gracious invitation to people everywhere to approach him without fear needs a sacrifice to be offered that truly bears the consequences of our sin. So on Mount Carmel, the fire consumes the sacrifice, and on Mount Calvary, the sacrifice consumes the fire. You see that? On Mount Carmel, the fire consumes the sacrifice. At the cross of Calvary, the sacrifice consumes the fire. That we look at there, look there and see God has made a way, God has made the sacrifice. And it's that good news that he would do that for us. It's the gospel of Calvary that can change hearts today as we see the love of God for us and it moves us to turn back to him. Amen. <laughs>